Merry Christmas, everybody. I'm Greg Boyd, teaching pastor here at the church. I'm really glad to see all of you here, especially like to welcome all you who are visiting us for the first time. Really glad that uh, you made it a point to be here this uh, afternoon. You know, around Christmas time, traditionally, we read from the Gospels of Matthew, the Christmas story in Matthew, or the Christmas story in Luke. People sometimes forget that John, the Gospel of John, also has his own version of a Christmas story. Now, it's not nearly as ornamental as with the other Gospels, and it's a lot more theological, probably a reason why I like it. But for today's message, I want to read John's version of the Christmas story. It starts at the very beginning of his gospel, and it goes like this. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Everything came into existence through him. He was the source of life, and that life was the light for humanity. The real light, which shines on everyone, was coming into the world. The Word became human and lived among us. That phrase actually in, in, in the Greek has a connotation of tabernacling with us, or he set up shop here. He made his home here. We saw his glory. It was the glory of the Father. Shares with his only Son a glory full of kindness and truth. I'll get back to this passage in a little bit. Right now, I just want you to lock this in. That word that became flesh, that's Jesus. And that word is God. It's uh, God manifesting himself. The word is God's revelation of himself. And so Jesus is that word. And that light has always been shining. Even before he became flesh, that light shines on everyone. God loves everyone and has always been seeking to reveal as much of himself to people as he can. We'll get back to that in a little bit. I'll start with this. Do you find that around Christmas time, you kind of get a little more nostalgic than maybe you usually are? I'm a lot like this. I'm not usually a real, I don't think about my past a whole lot, but around Christmas time, something about the season, especially when the Christmas story is read, there's all sorts of memories of childhood and, and past experiences, past Christmases that just come flooding into your mind. You find that that happens, and it creates these feelings of nostalgia. I... For example, there's, when I hear the Christmas story read, I sometimes, I, I, I see a manger scene in my mind. Um, it's a manger scene that my family would set up uh, around Christmas time for a couple of years was when I was a kid, between ages four and five or whatever. And there's something about that manger scene that just kind of captures the magic of the season. I, I can so vividly see Mary and Joseph and the little baby Jesus and the three wise men and and, and uh, the, the shepherds, and there's some cows and some sheep. Inside this barn, there's a little star overhead. I can see it like I, I, I saw it yesterday. And there's, there's something magical about it. And there's all these feelings uh, associated with it. And other memories as well. Like I can hear Bill Crosby singing Silent Night in the background. And I, I, can, I can smell this, like grandpa's cigar smoke. He's, I love my grandpa. He'd visit every Christmas, and he was always smoking a cigar. Things have changed quite a bit from then till now, but uh, that was just, he'd be reading a story, smoking a cigar. And, and I, to this day, I, I love that guy. I always felt so uh, safe with him or something, and he, I, I knew he loved me. And to this day, uh, cigar smoke still makes me, gives me a warm, fuzzy feeling inside. Uh, my wife, not so much, but I, I, I just find it's, it's, I just associate it with that. 
And then I, I can re-enter the excitement of a little kid wondering what Santa Claus is going to bring. And my dad, I remember my dad used to really, you know, put himself into this. Uh, he, would, he would, you know, join us in putting cookies and milk out for Santa Claus. And sometimes he'd say, oh, I think I hear reindeer in the sky. And he really just played it up. And it was just the, the magic of it, the innocence of it, the, the excitement of it. I, I can just kind of, I re-enter some of that. It could be a song, it could be the Christmas story. It just... And for some of us, it's like that. Now, there's also a sort of bittersweet quality to it. And I'm sure most of you can relate to this. Because it's gone. My grandpa's been gone for over 30 years. My father passed away 15 years ago. And uh, the magic and innocence of that childhood, that's probably been gone for over 50 years. And so there's a bittersweet quality with this. But we all sort of have this. It's nostalgia. Now, I, I wonder if when we hear the Christmas story and have this time of year, if there's something even more profound going on. It, it seems like when the Christmas story is read, there, there's something that taps into like a, the deepest longings and expectations and hopes and dreams of our heart. Uh, it resonates on an even deeper level that goes beyond nostalgia. It's why for some, the, hearing the Christmas story, or just thinking about God becoming a human being and dying for us on the cross to save us, it feels kind of like remembering a long-forgotten dream. I want to introduce you to two people who thought that that actually was going on. There's something more than nostalgia going on when we hear the Christmas story. One is, is J.R. Tolkien. I'm sure some of you know him. He was the author of uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. He's a famous Oxford professor who was a, a specialist in, in literature. And he was good friends with another, even more famous Oxford professor, uh, also a uh, professor of literature, and his name is C.S. Lewis. And both these guys are Christians. In fact, Tolkien was instrumental in bringing C.S. Lewis to faith. They're both Christians, and they're both experts in mythology. And they had some really interesting things to say about the relationship between mythology on the one hand and the Christian faith on the other, especially the, the, the Christmas story. And it kind of explains why it is that the Christmas story can connect with us on such a deep and profound level. When most people hear the word myth, they just think it's untrue. In modern times, we, we sort of equate myth with something that's just made up. But Tolkien and Lewis had a very, very different understanding. Uh, they believe that the great, great mythology throughout history, it expresses the deepest intuitions and hopes and longings and yearnings of the human heart. In that sense, mythology can be very true. It tells us something profound about ourselves and about our view of the world and our sense of, 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 of what, what is true. And one of the reasons why Tolkien and Lewis believe this is because they took seriously the Gospel of John, his version of the Christmas story. And John tells us that before the Word ever became incarnate, the, the, the Word was shining on everybody. There hasn't been a person in history that the Word wasn't seeking to shine his light on to bring some truth there, insofar as they would let it. In fact, Paul tells us in Acts 17 that from the very beginning, God has been working in every human heart to get people to yearn for him, reach out for him, and possibly find him, though he's not far from any of us. God's always been active in that. And C.S. Lewis and Tolkien believe that the greatest mythology in the world reflects that light. It expresses the light coming into people's lives. And, and for them, it's not surprising then, since the same word that became incarnate, became a human being in the person of Jesus Christ, that same word has always been shining light on people. It wasn't surprising to them 
that sometimes you can find faint echoes between some of the mythology that you find throughout world history and the story of Jesus. The same God is revealing himself uh, to, 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 both, to both groups. And so you find in the literature, mythological literature, of a lot of different cultures throughout history, you'll find echoes like, like stories of, of God coming down, a God coming to rescue human beings, or stories of heroes being born to virgins, or stories of dying and rising gods. Uh, from the view of C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, that's to be expected, because it's a reflection, a distant reflection of the light that was fully embodied and fully revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. So these myth makers, they didn't know the true version of God becoming a human being and dying for, to save us, but they intuited, they had like premonitions of it. And so you see that story kind of echoed in different mythologies of the world. The difference is this, when C.S. Lewis looked into it, and this is why he became a Christian, he found that there's compelling reasons for believing that the, the, the Christmas story, the gospel, is actually true, it's, it's rooted in history. Uh, it, it actually happened. And so he believed that the, he, he refers to Jesus as the myth becoming fact. Myth becomes history. And in his view, the Christmas story is the fulfillment of all these other stories. It is the, the, the true version of the story that all these other mythic stories are pointing to. And it fulfills the hopes and the dreams that are expressed in these other mythic stories because Jesus is the answer and the fulfillment of those hopes and dreams. In Jesus, it actually happens. One other thing that Tolkien and Lewis believed, and, and that is that the story of God becoming a human being, while they believe it's, it's, it's historical, because there's really good evidence for that, and by the way, if you're interested in looking into that kind of evidence, we've got several books in our bookstore uh, that talk a lot about that, so you might want to check that out. But even though they thought it's historical, Tolkien and Lewis said that it's, it's the greatest myth ever told. It's the greatest story ever told. And the rationale is this, what we really long for in the deepest crevice of our heart, what we ache for, is it's all about love. And the Christmas story, if we understand it rightly, is the greatest love story that's ever been told. In fact, it's the greatest love story that ever could be told, because it's a story of a God who created this entire universe, who's willing to sacrifice everything for us. You can tell the, the depth of love. By what, when, by what a lover is willing to sacrifice for a beloved. And so a story about two commoners who love each other, that'd be a nice story. But a story about a great and mighty and famous king who's willing to forsake the entire kingdom and all of his wealth and all of his power, give it all up for the sake of, because he was in love with a peasant girl, well, that's a more powerful, more beautiful, more poignant love story because the sacrifice is greater. And if we understand that, then by that criteria... The Christmas story is the most loving story ever told because it's a story of this God who created and sustains all things, this word, but who gave up the bliss of heaven and entered into our domain, made his home here, took up his residency here, and then died a hellish death on the cross, sacrificing everything for a beloved, a race of people who wanted nothing to do with him. It is the greatest love story ever told. Now, sometimes I think we, we hear this story too often, and, and we get kind of dulled to, to its radical beauty, its shocking beauty. And so I want us to slow down a little bit here and, and, and try to enter into this and hear it like you've heard it for the first time. The Word, John says, the Word who created all things, everything in this universe, became a human, took up residency here, and then gave his all for us. Think about this universe here for a second. Um, 
I don't know if you've ever gotten away from the city far enough where there's no light delusion, but if you look up at the starry sky and there's no lights around you, especially if you're at a high altitude, it's breathtaking, isn't it? You see, you see something like this. It's, it's just magnificent. I, I, when I was a young, stupid kid, I, I, for a couple of years, would travel out to Montana and I'd go to Beartooth Forest and uh, I'd spend three weeks out there all by myself. I say that I was stupid because I never told anyone where I was going. I never carried a flare gun. I never carried a gun. I never carried mace. I never carried anything that could repel a bear, and it's called Beartooth Forest. So I'm lucky to be alive, I guess. But I go out there, and I would camp out on the top of the mountains uh, of Beartooth Forest, and they're, they're, they're on a 10 to 12,000 elevation. And there's no, there's no city within hundreds of miles. And it was magnificent to look out that starry sky. And it, it was just breathtaking how beautiful that is. The word created and sustains all of that. It's magnificent. It becomes more magnificent when you realize this, that, that I can't turn on my stupid pointer laser beam. There, here we go. Is that it? Is it up to There, all right. So you look at that, and that's magnificent. But do you know that most of what you're seeing here are not individual stars, not individual suns. Most of what you're seeing here are actually galaxies. And these galaxies on average have about 400 billion suns in them. And so they're, they're actually, there's 400 billion stars packed in that star and that star. And over here, that, that's, that's not an individual sun. That's 400 billion suns. And, and these little twinkling lights in the sky, they're actually massive. These galaxies on average are about 100 or more, hundreds, sometimes thousands, sometimes millions of light years across. Absolutely massive. As I shared with the congregation several weeks ago, to, to capture how massive that is, think about this. Light travels at 186,000 miles per second. According to the current laws of physics, nothing can travel faster than light. 186,000 186, miles per second. If, if I shine this laser beam here or any flashlight, and if nothing obstructs that light, it will circle the earth seven times in one second. Kids, think about how fast you could run if you could run as fast as the speed of light. And your mark gets that go, and you could circle the earth seven times, and the earth is 24,000 miles you know, in circumference. Circle that seven times in a second. You can't even count that fast. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. You'd just be a blur. Oh, that's how fast light travels. And going that fast, it can travel six trillion miles in a year. Six trillion miles. And these little twinkly dots up here are hundreds and thousands and sometimes millions of light years across. If you're at the one edge of that little dot there, shining a flashlight in the, other, in the other direction, it would take hundreds and thousands and millions of years for light traveling at 186,000 miles per second to get the other side. It's just massive. And you say, well, if they're so massive, why do they seem so small? And the answer is that because they're incredibly, incredibly far away from us. They are each... Hundreds, some of those are hundreds, some are thousands, some are millions of light years away from us. Uh, and so it takes light that long to get to us. You look at these little stars here and the light from that one right there or that one right there, it, that might have originated a million years ago. That light originated when the dinosaurs were still walking the earth and we're just now getting it because it's that far away from us. This universe is absolutely massive. It's incomprehensibly massive. We can't think about this. The closest star to us is Alpha Centauri. Okay, uh, let's, let's pick out a star. I'll, I'll say it's uh, that one right there. Yeah, there's Alpha Centauri right there, little tiny guy. Eh? He's, that's the closest to us. He's 4.2 light years from us. So the light we're seeing at Alpha Centauri 
is, uh, whatever that one was, is four years old. Okay, so it's close to us. You think, oh, it's a mere four light years. If we were traveling in a spaceship, according to our current spaceships, which can travel about 25,000 miles per hour, if you're traveling in a spaceship trying to get to Alpha Centauri, it would take you over 80,000 years to get there. And that's the closest one. If, if, if you took this whole known universe and, and, and suppose it was the size of the Earth, then the distance between us and Alpha Centauri is about the distance between the tip of your thumbnail to the bottom of your thumbnail. And it would take you 80,000 years to traverse that distance. The Bible says that the heavens declare the glory of God, and, and, and they do. This, this, this universe, the vastness of this universe points in the direction of the vastness and magnitude and glory of the God who spoke it into existence and who's holding in existence. They say that this universe is 95 billion light years across. Um, and, it's the, and it's expanding at, a, at an accelerating rate all the time. Uh, they, they, they estimate that there's around 200 trillion galaxies in this universe. Now, a trillion is, is a thousand billions, and a billion is a thousand millions, and a million is a thousand thousands. There's 200 of that number galaxies, and each of those galaxies holds, on, on average, three to 400 billion stars. And see, what John is telling us is that the Word of God, He spoke all that into existence, and the Word of God holds it all into existence. Uh, God holds every one of those galaxies, those 200 trillion galaxies, in existence every second. And he holds every one of the, the, the suns in those galaxies in existence every second. And he holds every planet that circles those suns uh, in existence every second. And every rock on the planet and every atom in the rock and every molecule in the atom, all of it is held together uh, by the, the God who speaks this in, into existence. The vastness and glory of this universe just hints a little bit at the vastness and glorious, uh, gloriousness of the God, the magnitude, if you can use spatial metaphors, the magnitude and greatness and glory of the God who spoke it into existence and keeps it in existence. He's unfathomable, never began, never began, has no limitations whatsoever. We can't begin to comprehend him. But here's the thing. Uh, one of those 200 trillion galaxies is this galaxy called the Milky Way. It's an average-sized galaxy. It has about 400, three to 400 billion suns. And, 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 and in, that, in that galaxy, this isn't, by the way, the Milky Way, because no one's ever taken a picture of the Milky Way, because it would take us billions of years to get outside the Milky Way to take the picture. But it, it, it looks something like this. And on the outer parameter of this Milky Way is one star. Not a not, not particularly big star. It's our sun. And circling that sun is this little planet, this little speck of dust called Earth. And on this planet Earth, there's this race of people, uh, and they're in big trouble. Because, see, they think that they're God. And they think that they want to call their own shots. They want to do things their own way. And they've brought themselves into captivity to, to powers that are, are destructive and are much greater than themselves, and they're headed for destruction. Yet the God who created this universe and holds every molecule in the, of this universe in place, that God cares about this little race of people. In fact, he loves this little race of people to the point where he's willing to give up everything for the race of this little people. Think about this. The God who created this universe became this little baby, a little tiny baby. Like he became one of us, took up residency here. And that's something what Jesus would look like. And the God who created this universe not only became this little baby, but he became a crucified criminal on a cross in Nazareth. And he did that because that's what was needed to free us from our oppression to the powers that were destroying us. He did this to reveal to us something of his love for us. And he did this to take up his residency here, to bring us home again, uh, to, to restore us to himself. 
God couldn't have done more than he did for us. He couldn't have paid a higher price. He couldn't have made a greater sacrifice. He couldn't have crossed a greater distance than he actually did for us. And the perfection and the, the extremity to which he was willing to go on our behalf reveals the perfection of the love that he is and the perfection of the love that he has for each one of us. And folks, that is the light. That is what we are created for. That is what our heart yearns for. We are created for to be at home and to take residency and to be in related to this kind of perfect love. Our heart aches for this. Maybe it's gotten buried along the way. Maybe it's gotten suppressed. Maybe you, you've intentionally suppressed it because you've had so many disappointments in your life. You'd rather not expect and hope for anything and be surprised rather than look for something and be disappointed. But deep in your heart, it is there. And that light, that, that, that yearning in your heart is itself the reflection of God shining light into you. And he's shining that light in you because that, that, that yearning is your honing device to drive you to him. He's calling you. He desperately wants to be in a relationship with each and every one of us because he knows that it's only in that relationship that the yearning of our heart and the hopes and the dreams can find their fulfillment. We were created for him. And he's bringing home to us. And so what you need to know is this. Right now, you are loved with a love by your creator that goes beyond anything you could possibly imagine. And this is the love that you were made for. And he's calling you. He's given you that light to lead you to the one who is the light of the world, to take up your residency in him the same way he's taken up his residency among us. Entering into that relationship and entering into that home is as easy as just submitting to him. It's just, you just stop pretending like you're Lord of your own life and accept him as Lord of your life. And you turn over the driver reins to him. It's so simple, but it involves everything. It involves all your heart and involves a commitment of your life. Um, and so you may not feel anything when you first surrender to him, but as you learn to re receive that light in that love and walk in that light and that love, you'll find that the yearnings of your heart begin to be fulfilled. We never feel fully at home and in place in this universe until we find the creator of this universe who is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. So if you make that decision, and you can make it right now, you can make it while we're having our little candlelighting service or when we're singing the next song. You can make it while you're driving home. You can make that decision at any time. But you're going to need help living it out. And so if you make that decision, I encourage you to come back next week. I encourage you to get involved. We are all called to help each other walk this out and live this out. But folks, this is the good news. The God of this universe, creator of heaven and earth, loves us that much. He is this kind of love. And we are dwelling in darkness, but he's brought us this great light, praise God. And the light is the light of the world, and the light is what fills the longings of our heart. And he's done it for us that we can live the life that he called us to live, to live fully alive, to be filled with his love and filled with his joy. And that is good news. Do you think that's good news? Do you think that's good news? It's the best news in the universe. <laughs> All right. So would you stand? We're going to uh, uh, sing a song celebrating that good news and proclaiming that good news. Let's go tell it on the mountain. <laughs>